Welcome on in the Tony Parks Podcast. Thanks so much for being with us here today and joining us for all the episodes right there on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, and more. We thank you, as always, for being a part of the show. And we uh, always love your feedback, so make sure to uh, email me, TonyParks801 at gmail.com. Follow me on all social media channels at TonyParks801. Uh, I know that the show was just once last week. My schedule has changed. I'll talk about that more on a future episode. Some very, very good news. Um, But it's one of those that uh, I want to lay it out and make sure I have a chance uh, to talk about it in its entirety. Um, But we have so much to get to today. Um, A really unique story that I want to get to on uh, lifting the curtain, as we always have a lot of fun with that. Plenty of great stories involving lifting the curtain Um, Also, we'll talk about the Morgan Scally situation there with the University of Utah and uh, the NBA, uh, the games to return and what exactly we expect those games uh, to look like and some other uh, interesting thoughts on kind of what it will mean for the Utah Jazz in terms of competition. Um, You know, we get into the dates and when things are coming back and how things are going to lay out. But we also can start to talk about what this means for the Utah Jazz while trying to compete and win and advance and uh, continue to uh, take big steps going forward uh, as a team and as a franchise trying to achieve uh, the ultimate dream. Uh, So we'll talk about plenty of that and more. Uh, Thanks as always for being a part of the show. I I love all of your feedback and um, it's been great to have uh, back and forth conversations for all of you um, that have been tuning into this. So couldn't do it without you. Uh, so thanks as always. All right, let's let's jump right into it. Um, one of the stories I wanted to get to today uh, was uh, lifting the curtain, an interesting story um, involving one of the greatest performances in the history of this state. Now, the greatest college basketball performance and maybe the greatest basketball player in the history of the state was Billy the Hill McGill. Okay, scored sixty points against BYU on February 24th of 1962. He had an incredible year, uh, scored 38 points a game, but that was one of his final regular season games. But according to McGill, he played with a little extra fire that day. Uh, This is what he had to say in an interview that I had with him all the way back in January of 2011. Um, uh, This audio is not the best because I had it... uh, it was, it was kind of a group gathering quickly. It wasn't necessarily expected to be media availability, and then they, they made him available kind of um, in a, uh, a moment of spontaneity. So the interview with him is in the midst of people at a big gathering. Uh, they were celebrating one of his uh, Final Four teams. Um, this is about 10 years ago or so. Uh, so I'll happily uh, summarize what he said as soon as I'm done playing it, if the uh, audio quality is not great. But here's what he had to say about that moment before that game against BYU uh, all the way back in 1962. Hey, Getting off of the bus. <clears throat> the bus pulled right up in front of the arena, you know. And we was getting off. And in the... Uh, in the midst of all of those people, I heard someone holler the N-word, you know, so that kind of put more fuel to the fire, you know, going into the locker room uh, after hearing that, so basically it 
just really pissed me off. So there you hear it. Billy McGill actually goes off for 60 points. He was fueled by a racial slur when he got off the bus back in 1962. Um, And he talked about this. He said that that moment there in Provo was actually an isolated incident. It's not something that had happened before uh, or really since, and that most of the fans were actually pretty good whenever he went uh, down to Provo. But he said that moment, that day, uh, that had happened. He got in the locker room. He was very emotional. He told his teammates... Give me the ball. And he went out. He scored 60 points. uh, The greatest individual performance, I think, uh, in college basketball in this state. And I know Jimmer had plenty of great performances, and and there's many others uh, that it can be compared to. But that, I thought, uh, was out of this world in terms of a a really interesting story. He and I became pretty good friends for the final handful of years uh, that, uh, that he was here. He actually was a guy that became... A really sad story in the history of great African-American athletes during that time. Uh, Billy injured his knee in high school. Um, There was, uh, and and I've talked to Ron Boone about this before, there was an overwhelming fear that athletes had of ever being injured, uh, the black athletes, uh, during a time and a window like that because they were scared of never being able to play again or considered soft or considered um, not worth the risk of having on the team. Um, because of uh, so much other tension that was involved uh, with having African-American athletes on your team. And so Billy was the first ever uh, um, black player on Utah's basketball roster, and Billy was scared to ever mention the injury. He never got the proper treatment. He played with an knee injury his entire career at Utah, accomplished just about everything a player could on a team and individual level at Utah, but it caught up to him. Um, when he got to the NBA, and he was known, big picture as a disappointment. He was the number one pick. Uh, his career was short, certainly never lived up to being the number one pick. Um, he just couldn't play to the level that he needed to with the knee not getting proper treatment. If I remember right, some of his offensive numbers were, yeah, you know, respectable, but his defense was a major liability, and Uh, Many in the game talked about how his defensive liability came from the knee injury. He just wasn't able to get to a great level. And so Billy told me a story once, too, though, not many know about this. When his knee was injured, and they were in the doctor's office, I think he was like 15 years old, his stepdad walks in, looks at him on the table, and said, quote, well, great, how much is this going to cost us? And so it was more and more pressure for him not to speak up uh, about something that he needed proper treatment for. So while he was incredible and dominant on the court, he actually went through his life with fear of disappointing other people. That was another thing uh, about Billy that I thought was really interesting. Um, He had this overwhelming guilt that he carried with him uh, after his playing career. Um, After it didn't pan out for him, he was homeless, he was depressed, Uh, He said he felt lifeless, and I I kept thinking about all the reasons he shouldn't feel that way, but he said to me that he truly felt like he let the people of Salt Lake City and the people in the state of Utah down, that he should have been more successful. He he should have had a better playing career. He wishes he had something the state could be proud of, and and he and I had many long conversations, and it was hard to convince him um, that he had nothing to be ashamed of and owed Really, nobody anything whatsoever. And so, Billy the Hill McGill, uh, one of the most incredible athletes, but also one of the 
more unique stories when it comes to why things turned out the way it did for him, uh, not just on that 60-point game that he had back in 1962, um, but also for the rest of his career, whether it be at Utah or there in the NBA, and then even the rest of his life. He wrote a book, um, and he uh, describes a lot of the experiences and stuff like that. And it, it very insightful, very, very insightful. So if you're big into um, kind of the history of athletes in the state of Utah and one guy who accomplished so many and is really kind of forgotten, it, it's Billy the Hill McGill. I mean, he very much was one of the athletes that, that kind of gets overlooked when you think of great players in all the different sports uh, here in uh, the state of Utah, and he had many great games in his career. That was the best game of his career with the 60 points, and it was the next week um, that Wilt Chamberlain went on to score 100 points in an NBA game. So he scores 60, it's a big deal, and in the blink of an eye, bam, Wilt Chamberlain goes off for 100 points. Billy actually, as a high school athlete, played in a pickup game with Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, and I always forget who else it was. He told me this story. I always forget who else he played against, but they talked about his hook shot and why his hook shot was so incredible. So, uh, Billy the Hill McGill, rest easy, my friend. Um, just wanted to talk about kind of an interesting moment with lifting the curtain and a special one uh, involving one of the greatest athletes in the history of the state. All right, a few things to get to today because all the news has taken place over the past week couple things. One, Morgan Scally suspended on Friday after it was confirmed uh, by Scally um, that uh, he had used an inappropriate racial slur when referring to a recruit back in 2013. He mentioned it in a text and then accidentally sent the text to the recruit. That's what happened. He used an inappropriate racial slur, um, the uh, big inappropriate racial slur, and sent it to the recruit on accident. Now, this was seven years ago which does not uh, in any way excuse that kind of uh, behavior. He's suspended indefinitely, and it'll be interesting to see what the University of Utah does. It's been a mixed review when former players have talked about Morgan. It seems that players in the recent years have had nothing but great things to say about him, while players in the more distant past have had some negative things to say about him. Not every one of them in each situation, but most of them. So <clears throat> I thought Booby Hobbs had one of the more interesting responses when talking about Coach Scally. He said uh, he loved the way that he coached him to get better, thought that he was naive, though, thought he was negligent, thought he was really opening, uh, um, not really opening up to understanding deeply who he was and why their experiences were different. Um, many of them said that even though they didn't condone the behavior, that they didn't think that Morgan Scally is a racist. I believe them. I don't think that he is a racist either. But the discussion isn't about whether or not Scally is a racist, but his behavior was racist. That part is not up for debate. And that behavior cannot go overlooked in a program, or any program really, but this program, this Utah program, that holds people to such a high level of behavioral accountability. Codes of conduct. You know, very specific rules that have been laid out, which they take such great pride in. Um, and it's something that Booby Hobbs uh, brought up when discussing all of this. So Utah has prided itself on stern accountability, on being one of its major pieces of a foundation that has helped them be so successful over the years. 
And even though it happened seven years ago, it's a really serious issue. A person in position of authority who has impact on a young person's hopes, dreams, and goals of becoming something great in the sport they love, and that person being referred to by a horrendous racial slur by a 34-year-old who had been in and around college football for 16 years. That is one thing that has to be brought up. This, this was not some 19-year-old shooting off his mouth and learning something that he really didn't know anything better about. Like, that, that's not what this is. This is not somebody's first time being out there in the world and they use a phrase or say something that shows that maybe they're really out of touch with kind of what other people and their realities happen to be. That's, that's not what this was. So, from a distance, it would appear with the way the players react to him, if you just, like, look at it from that way, it looks like he made a serious change and that it changed him for the better because, like I said, the recent players are all all in on this positive regard to him and how he's impacted their lives and how much they appreciate all of that. And so the question then becomes, does that matter in the end? It matters, it seems, in terms of the impact he's had on recent players, the impact it's had on him in a behavioral change. And once again, I'm just going off of players' reaction from this. I, I don't know deeply uh, from the insight of knowing Morgan person to person, if that's the case. Many others know him better, and that is what they're also saying. But like I said, the discussion is, does it matter in the end? So he's improved as a person. He's helped other people improve as people. But I thought Jake Scott from 1280 The Zone, a former co-host of mine who, who does a really great job, I thought he had a great question when discussing all of this the other day. And I, I thought he was just being very uh, honest and, and very... I I guess asking a question that had to be asked, that has to be thought about going forward. He said, can Morgan Scally perform his job going forward? Because it's one thing for players of 12 and 13 years ago to have something negative to say about him. It's another thing for recent players having great things to say about him. But a question that has to be asked is, how do future players that are being recruited or being brought onto the team and being coached by him, how do they feel about him? Because they weren't there with, when he was working with, you know, uh, Julian Blackman, Marcus Williams, some of these guys that have had uh, great things to say about, you know, what he did for them in their career. But what do the future players, those recruited by him or those who have then been brought into the program and are playing for him in that moment, what do they think going forward? Because we know something like this will be used in negative recruiting. And we know that something like this can have other negative consequences. So it is critical that Utah gets this right. Now, before they get it right, they have to get all the information. And that's why I think they are doing the right thing by not just jumping and reacting. And they're trying to get all of the information before making a final decision. And that, I think, is the right approach. Um, and I also uh, credit Morgan Scally for jumping ahead of this and saying, by the way, yes, I'm going to own this. This is what I did. Uh, there's more to it. Y you know, but like he took total responsibility. He reached out, called players. I think that is a positive. That positive does not in any way erase the negative behavior of seven years ago, but it at least is the very best thing that he can do 
in that moment. It, it also might not be enough to uh, ultimately save him from the ultimate consequence that could be coming down at the end of this, but at least in that moment, he's doing the right thing there. So going off of what we know, which is still very limited to this point, heinous mistake, egregious mistake, recent players with positive things to say about him, and then he takes full responsibility for it in the moment. What the consequence is in the end, or what the final decision is, we still don't know. Now, I've, I, I, I will say this, though. It, it, it obviously can't come with shrug shoulders, slap on the wrist, uh, raised eyebrows, hey, everybody makes mistakes. No, no. It's, it's, I mean, it's got to have consequence. It's got to have uh, serious accountability because this is a program that takes pride in itself on a high, high level of accountability. So what that exact consequence is, I don't know, but it can't be something that's dealt with lightly. And I don't think it will be, for the record. Now, I've never known Morgan as well as, as some of the other members of the media. It's just that, uh, like, in different moments when he's been at Utah, I've been at other places covering different things, uh, or I'll be busy with jazz season, or when I was doing the AP voting, it's not a situation where you really get close to coaches and things like that. So a variety of different reasons. And then... So he and I have a history that crossed or uh, of of different places that we're very familiar with, but like he went to Highland before I was involved in that community. So every time I've talked to him, sometimes we have um, a lot of things in common to discuss, but I haven't really dealt with him a lot compared to some of the other members of the media. Um, every time I did talk to him, great to deal with. Every person that I know that knows him has nothing but great things to say about him. But I've also seen great people and known great people who've made really egregious mistakes. And while forgiveness and second chances are all things that I believe in, I also know that accountability can't be excused. Negative behaviors can't be excused. And different mistakes, sadly, come with different price tags. They just, they do. I think of all the mistakes that I have made and, and, Decisions that I've regretted, and, and they've all come with different price tags. From what I've heard, there's still a lot that is missing when it comes to information, so there's not much more that can really be said until we have all of that info. I'll say this, though. This is an interesting, uh, interesting thing that I'm seeing out there on social media. Don't get too wrapped up in the story you're rooting for while battling with doing what ends up being ultimately right. Because we as a society have been talking regularly in the past few weeks about making change and doing what's right to achieve justice and things like that. So if the right decision in this matter and the final decision in this matter is not the result that you are hoping for, because you would hate to see somebody lose their job, you'd hate to see somebody's worst mistake be out there for everybody to see, I got that. But you have to accept that as part of the change that might be necessary for all the things we've been talking about. Because sometimes that change is going to come with inconvenience and disappointing endings. All right, the other thing, great to see major pro sports with a plan, a schedule, and the overwhelming realistic possibility uh, that we are going to see, you know, games, real games going on in any kind of way. And when I say realistic possibility, that's because uh, there's still that intervening variable that is COVID-19 that can be very unpredictable. We don't know exactly what to expect, but... The plan, as it's put together, uh, the NBA ready to go, late July, things to get started again. 
Uh, I really applaud Adam Silver and so many in the league who had to work tirelessly to put something like this together. So many things have been changing, so much uncertainty, and I'm sure they've been putting together a crazy amount of contingency plans, probably still are, and have had to meet about things they've never had to meet about before. Uh, This was not an easy task, and you're seeing some of the other leagues, like Major League Baseball, who appears to be having a much tougher time figuring out how to even start, how many games, how the money's going to be divided, things like that. Uh, You're seeing something like that happen, and while I'm a big baseball fan, uh, it does go to show that what the NBA was able to do um, was very difficult, and that uh, the way that they were able to put this together takes a lot of work and a lot of people pulling uh, in the same direction. Adam Silver and people in positions of leadership really get judged most about what they were able to do in a moment of crisis. And sometimes you're not going to be able to come out of it in the financial position that you want to have, but sometimes leadership is best when that leadership knows how to minimize as much damage as possible. There was no perfect answer to any of this. So Adam Silver had to go with best. And I have to say, this was probably best. And by no means easy. I'm sure several people involved with the league haven't slept much in the past three months, and uh, they've probably, you know, they're they're probably not going to sleep much for a while, actually. Um, The NBA will have their season, a quick uh, off-season then, and then they hope to get going with the regular season games, what, starting around Christmas Day. So a very short turnaround. Incredible, by the way. Um, so the NBA uh, was always wanting to be in the news cycle 12 months out of the year. They did a great job with that in their past scheduling. Uh, this time around, it was not a part of their plan, and I'm sure no one preferred that it go like this, but they are going to be uh, at the forefront for a while uh, with the NBA postseason Marked all over the late part of August, all the way through, uh, what, uh, September, and then the finals there in the beginning of October. So, so now the question is for me, what's it going to look like? Not what's it going to look like on TV. I already have a pretty good vision of that. No crowd, fewer people, all of that. Got it. What's it going to look like in terms of the quality of product we're going to see on the floor? So I love that the league, is really going to take their time to be absolutely sure that they have uh, players with ample time to get back into shape. So I, I don't want to go over the whole, like, are they going to be safe with testing and all that? That, that conversation's had, and, and we all know that human safety is going to be the number one thing when it comes to the health of a human being um, and the coronavirus and all that. So we, we've got that part. So now it comes down to the health of the player when returning. Because even though they're going to get this amount of time, that was a lot of time off between the last time they played and the next time they're going to get out there and some of the deep work that goes into getting into optimal level NBA shape. Because you're going to have guys in optimal level NBA shape. You're going to have some guys maybe that are at 80% of the way that they usually were. And then you might have guys that are considered good enough shape. Now we all know that it means guys would be able to come back and perform like with the games happening. But you might have crazy gaps in performance level between individuals on the court because being in NBA shape and then optimal NBA shape, that, there, there can be a gap there. 
There's a routine that their bodies go through throughout the course of the year. There's a routine that takes place. You disrupt that to this kind of a level with some of these variables that have been mixed in with all of it, different guys in terms of their mind and their body are going to react very differently to this. Some people may be traveling overseas uh, while all of this has happened uh, to go back home. Some people uh, being well away from their team. And, you know, you're on conference meetings, you're having conversations, you're trying to work out, you're trying to do those things. But some people didn't have some of the same access to different facilities. So I'm, I'm very curious to see, like, how this is going to impact a number of different people. Uh, think about both of the lockouts that I've had in my lifetime. In 1999 and 2012, right? So two of those. You had situations that showed teams performing at very different levels at very different times. So people really forget about the Utah Jazz in 1999. Um, they always say, oh, those, that, that 98 Jazz team, they had a chance to win it all, and that was their last chance. And no, it really wasn't their last chance. Um, the last chance for the Jazz to win it all was 99. They looked like the only team that had a real shot at winning the title for the first half of that 50-game season. I mean, it was like the Jazz, and there was a huge gap, and there was everybody else. The standings probably showed that a little bit, but what really showed was quality of play. So maybe even two-thirds of that season, they looked like kind of the only championship team. Then the Spurs, who started the year horribly, turned it up to a crazy level and stormed through winning the title. It was nuts. Uh, they tied the Jazz for the best record in the NBA at the end of that. I think they were 37-13. and 13. Uh, The Jazz had the, the, they were on the outside of the tiebreaker. So they were the three seed, but actually the second best record. Um, <clears throat> because you, if you didn't win your division, uh, you weren't one of the first two seeds back then. So that Spurs team, um, they, they took off. They won the title. They were amazing. The Jazz that year really faltered at the end of the regular season and they weren't at championship level when they entered the playoffs. So there was a very big difference on their quality of play in the first, whatever it was, 42 games, I don't know, and then the last part of the regular season, and then the whole playoffs. Even when they won a first-round series, they just, they weren't the same. They weren't. Also in 1999, you had an 8-1 upset. Now, you didn't just have an 8-1 upset. You had an 8-seed roll through and win the Eastern Conference Finals with key injuries on the roster and not a ton of size. Uh, that was the New York Knicks that year. Uh, and that was a fun team to watch, by the way. But that team, just with the way that they were playing and the way the roster was beaten up and the way uh, you just, it looked like they had no business being in an NBA Finals. In 2012, you had an 8-1 upset. You also had a Spurs team that was playing out of their minds going into the playoffs. Then started 10-0 and after they swept the Jazz, swept the Clippers, then started up 2-0 on the Thunder. That was the series that Greg Popovich said he wanted some nasty. He was like yelling at his team, I want some nasty, bring the nasty. And the Spurs went out there and won. I think it was game one of that series against, uh, I think it was, yeah, game one of that series against the Thunder. So he said he wanted some nasty. They go up two games to nothing on the Thunder. They look great. And after they started 10-0, and looked like the favorite to win the whole thing, they didn't win another game. They lost four in a row to the Thunder. So, <clears throat> I've thought about this. If we have very unexpected and bizarre stretches of performance, 
when a season is started later than usual, what kind of unpredictable things could we see now that the season gets played after being disrupted at such a late time in the schedule with it being gone for what will be a total of four and a half months before play resumes? What are we going to see? Like I said, I know what it's going to look like, the empty gyms, all that. No, what are we going to see in terms of quality of play and which teams are going to be most affected by that? I'm really curious about what's going to happen. This, this can be that kind of a season where a light contender could go win it all. It could be the season where a pretender plays more like a contender and has a chance to pull it off. Or maybe the favorite has the road that becomes even easier. I don't know. Maybe all of a sudden the Lakers step in and the path actually becomes uh, a lot easier for them compared to everyone else and they boat race everyone and, and this is a moot point. I don't know. I think it's going to be fascinating when the games get going. Who's impacted most by what has happened? And who is not impacted as much? So for the Jazz, they're a team with a lot of young, promising players, but also a team with guys that didn't own a gym inside of their home. I don't know many of the guys that had access to other uh, facilities while the team facility was shut down. I would think maybe the guys that stayed here and, and lived in Utah and all of that, <laughs> maybe with enough of the churches that were around here, somebody could, uh, you know, go unlock the doors and give them that, that you know, individual access to the gym that was, I would not doubt that something like that had happened. Uh, everybody doing their part to help out the Utah Jazz. I don't blame them. <laughs> and I, I don't know what the answer is for almost every player in the entire league. So you wonder what each guy will be like when they return. It's also because they're not coming back into a preseason type situation. They're coming into a situation where they're battling for different seating right away. Home court advantage is out the window. I got that. But matchups are still going to be important. Then you start to think about matchups. Like, wait, you think about that and realize that the matchups we thought about before could have an entirely different meaning. Maybe one team you thought about not wanting to play before all of this uh, suddenly uh, suddenly uh, uh, becomes a team that you want to go right at in the new situation. Uh, that happened with the Utah Jazz against uh, the Portland Trailblazers in 99, that lockout season, right? So in the beginning, or throughout most of the year, the Jazz were really good against the Portland Trailblazers. I went to one of the regular season games uh, late in that 99 year, and I remember the Jazz just, just always seemed to be a step ahead. They looked more like a contender, and the Blazers looked like a light contender. And then when they met in the postseason, you could see the matchup was a nightmare. I mean, you could just see it, that it was really hard for the Jazz. And, and that I, I remember Portland in game one of that series had the Jazz. They had them down. And then Portland scored five points in the fourth quarter, and the Jazz rallied to win. I think the Jazz only scored 19 points in that fourth quarter, but they rallied to win. And I remember thinking how lucky the Jazz were. And then in game two... Portland just put on the stress on the Jazz constantly through the night. Stockton missed kind of a tough angle layup at the very end uh, that would have tied the game. I was actually at game two in that second round. And when they lost that game, you could not only feel that they were going to lose the series, that felt like the official end of the championship window for the Stockton and Malone era. But what people would forget, okay, so they lost to Portland in that second round in six games. But earlier, the Jazz, they looked like they would beat a team like Portland in five or six games, you know, and just be the championship team, the contender against the pretender. The Jazz had the MVP in Carl Malone. They had, you know, what was, 
for most of the season, the very best team in the NBA. So watching that flip was really interesting because it looked like two completely different situations in a matchup. So in this scenario, would we see something like that happen before where it's a team that you think, oh man, you don't want to have anything to do with them in a matchup in the playoffs. And now with this new situation, you could see maybe the quality of a team dip and now they become the team you want to go right at. Or maybe uh, on the other side, there's a team that's lower in the seeding you know, for the postseason, uh, six, seven, or eight seed, that initially you would have thought, oh, yeah, you could take them in a seven. They'd be fine. And now you're saying, oh, whoa, 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 we don't want anything to do with them uh, when this whole thing comes around. And different teams might look that way. Um, so if you're a team like the Jazz that's looked like a contender throughout some of the year, that dominant 19-2 and two stretch where your offense hit a crazy level, and you've also had stretches where you look like a pretender where you were winning some games and you had a month-long stretch where your defense was like 29th or something like that. So you, you've had weird moments where you look like one thing and the other. And here's the good news. There's so many unknowns in a setting like this one that if any team can just put it together for a quality two-month stretch of play, they give themselves a real chance to win the whole thing. The whole thing. Because I think it can actually be more up for grabs than it would have been had you had the season continue in its conventional form. The other thing uh, that you have to like in a situation like this, when things are really strange and unorthodox, what kind of people do you have in place for leadership? Well, the Jazz have a coach in place that always seems to make the most out of whatever is put in front of them. So while I don't think it's fair to define any of these coaches negatively on what might happen going forward, the negative stuff, I don't think it's fair because there's too many variables. So if a coach has a really, really good team before all of this and then things fall apart, let's say coming back from this, I'm not going to define that coach. I don't think it's fair. There's way too much out of their hands to be like, well, you didn't manage that right. I mean, we could certainly have some players in the NBA that come back much heavier than they should be not in the kind of condition we thought they'd be, you know, kind of the Sean Kemp 1999. I mean, that, that could happen. So there's too much out of each coach's control that if the negative results happen, I'm, I'm not going to define them by that. But I do think you can give them a lot of credit to some of the coaches who will do a great job of preparing their team best through what was a really unique and unprecedented mess. And I think Quinn Snyder will give the Utah Jazz the very best chance in all of those ways. Because that's my thing with coaches a lot of times. I don't need to know if you can go take, you know, five dudes at the YMCA to go become a championship team. That, that's not what I need to see. But can you make the very best out of any situation you're given? And can you give that group the very best chance all the time? That's what I kind of like to look at when it comes to coaches. You know, Jerry Sloan did that with a 42-40 and 40 team that some people were saying might only win a single-digit number of games. They were expected to be the worst team in the NBA. He took them to 42-40. and 40. That is arguably the best work I've ever seen him do, ever. Quinn Snyder has taken over teams that had issues in the locker room with Ennis Cantor that had, you know, other problems or just a roster that was really light in terms of its... Um, sort of firepower, and has been able to get the most out of it. And this is a situation where I think he will be the guy that is best to make the most out of, like I said, a very unique mess. 
Um, so that that's what it comes down to. How are different teams affected as a group? And I, I, like I said, I could see some teams that were doing well being impacted negatively because now they have to start up again. Maybe they got to find that rhythm, find what it was that made them really good before it all ended. You'll have some other teams that might have been underperforming. Now they get a chance for some self-evaluation. Like I said, I think the Jazz fit into that spot a little bit. Um, maybe Conley having a chance to really sit down and look at some things over a few months to fully get acclimated into what the Jazz are doing and to mentally move his habits into exactly the way he would need to play um, so that instead of him being out there and, and being a good player for the Jazz, now he becomes maybe a, a, a more significant difference maker. Uh, for the Jazz, a chance to hit the reset button, suddenly start playing to a better level than they were before this was over uh, because they had some kind of bizarre performances up and down. Uh, they were a very weird team, to say the least. Um, and then there are other teams that just simply find a level they didn't know they had before, and then maybe it all comes together at the most important time. I don't know if the Jazz are in that spot, but I think you might have a younger team, maybe uh, uh, you know a team that, uh, like I said, was towards the bottom of those playoff spots that starts to really hit a different uh, uh, level of play. Um, that was a bit of the 1999 Spurs. They found it earlier than the 80% mark of the regular season, but uh, is there a team like the Memphis Grizzlies that start to show something like that that people uh, didn't know that they had before? So once again, if you were a team that was not the favorite in a position that you wanted to improve your chances of winning the title, something like this can muddy the water enough uh, to the point that it improves uh, your chances. So we'll see what happens here uh, going forward. Uh, this has been a lot of fun being a part of the Tony Parks podcast. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in here today. Always appreciate your feedback. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on, you know, Morgan Scally here going forward. Uh, of course, we, we'll wait for more information and all the information, and then we'll uh, dissect that maybe a little bit more into the future. And then also the NBA's return. Uh, your thoughts on kind of how you think something like this could impact the Utah Jazz, what this does mean going forward. Uh, so tweet at me or, or you send anything out on any form of social media at Tony Parks 801. And you can email me Tony Parks 801 at gmail.com. This has been uh, the Tony Parks podcast right here on the Utah Podcast Network.